Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Maybe I should have killed four or 500 people, then I would have felt better. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in that. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can't get violent and angry. Welcome to The Squonk and the Hag, a podcast about murder, mystery, the supernatural, and even a conspiracy or two. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Mo. And I'm Kraken. And this week, Kraken is sick. So I do not have my trusty frog with me today. However, I do have a special guest that was very last minute. My husband's going to be on the show, even though he isn't into the subject matter. Uh, well, I mean, the, the Cecil Hotel is pretty cool, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> This is going to go well. I'm regretting everything already. But yes, this week we are going to be talking about the Cecil Hotel. Before we get into today's story, I do want to preface that there are a lot of suicides involved. This is something that is very near and dear to me about mental health and taking care of yourself. But if you or someone you know are in crisis and you do feel like there is no solution other than that one solution, please reach out to somebody for help. There are a lot of avenues. Recently, 9 was released, which is the National Crisis Hotline. And there's also things like the 24-hour National Crisis Talk Line that lets you text as well. So if you can text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741741, there's plenty of resources out there. Just please take care of yourself, guys. But now, on to our story. Deaths happen in hotels. It's It's inevitable. But there are some that just draw death to them, like a supernatural magnet. One of the best known is the Cecil Hotel. It was the sparkling jewel of the Roaring Twenties and has turned into a vigil of death in the supernatural in what is now known as Skid Row. So how did a decadent hotspot turn into a place said to have, quote unquote, insanity within its walls? And a place where, again, quote, serial killers let their hair down. Sounds like a lovely place. Yeah. You want to go? Should we, we can book I mean, a trip. Yeah, we, we, could, we, could, we could hang out there sometime, maybe. I don't know. It sounds, <laughs> sounds pleasant. Yeah, sure, pleasant. I just love a place that's been commented like, oh yeah, serial killers just hang out here, socialize, just, just chill. <laughs> the way I like to do these is I also like to look at the time and place and do a little bit of historical research. Let's take a trip back to 1924. Calvin Coolidge became the first president to deliver a radio broadcast from the White House. The Computing Tabulating Recording Company, also known as CTR, renamed to the International Business Machines, IBM. Ah. That IBM, yes. The very first woman governor in the U.S., Nellie Taylor Ross, was elected in Wyoming, and the Roaring Twenties were in full swing. Does that mean like the Charleston had just been invented? I'm not sure. I did not look up when was the Charleston invented. Hmm. Well, thought you were doing some research. <laughs> the Twenties saw a dramatic social, economical and political change in the states with the increase of what is now deemed a consumer culture. Between 1920 and 1929, the country's wealth more than doubled. 
now over 60% of homes had electricity, up from 16% the decade before. Wait, wait, six, 16, like, had electricity? <laughs> Wow. Before these were a bit more rustic than I imagined in 1910. <laughs> yeah, I mean, only the rich could get it pretty much. Now women were allowed to vote and the jazz age was rolling across the country. Now, part of the population was letting loose, you know, jazz, flappers, booze, and the rest of the country was cracking down with prohibition. So prohibition lasted from 1920 through 1933. In Los Angeles, in 1924, a pneumonic plague outbreak happened and killed at least 30 people. Now, this is not the bubonic plague. This was the pneumonic plague. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I would have heard of the bubonic plague killing a bunch of people in the 20s in America. Yeah. And the Cecil Hotel was built in 1924. The Cecil Hotel was the dream of William Banks Hanner, Charles L. Dix, and Robert H. Shops. Their dream? Build a destination for business travelers and tourists, a place that would awe and comfort its guests. At the time, it cost $1.5 million, which today is $26,035,789. The like fairly decent end hotel, like yes. not, not, not a motor lodge. Correct. At the time, it was a very high-end hotel. The hotel boasted opulence with its marble lobby, stained glass windows, exotic plants, and alabaster statues. There were 700 rooms, and the grand opening was an extravagant affair with celebrities and debutantes, socialites. The area around the hotel was surrounded with theaters, restaurants, shopping, and it was all near the Spring Street Financial District, which of course is going to be a wealthier area because it's where all the money. banks and yeah, all the money is. The hotel was also close to the railway lines and LA's public transit system, which was the largest electric railway system in the world at the time. So it was a big deal. It was a hot spot. There were, I believe it said 70,000 people going through the area on any given day. This was 1924? Yes. Yeah, in downtown LA. There was one teeny tiny design flaw with the architecture of the hotel. Was it was it named like something out of Ghostbusters? Was it like channeling entered? <laughs> It was, it was, the architecture was like some cult leader, something like that, like. Not quite, but it might be considered a type of evil. Not every room had a private bathroom. Well, I mean, I, I feel like that was pretty normal for that time though, right? Well, or at least like, isn't, cause I've seen, I've seen cheaper hotels and stuff that had like a communal bathroom. Yeah, like but one this or is, two per floor. This is a fancy hotel. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying they're they're they're, they're that wasn't out of the like. Yeah, I've heard of that before. Yeah, this is true. Of buildings of that age. Yeah, so the original pricing plan: rooms that used the communal bathrooms were one dollar per night. Yeah, so I mean, like they're, they're they're trying to get like the cheap businessman who just is coming in, you know, for the one night. Yeah. Let's see, it's 1924, so I guess you're selling like what, mops and brushes door to door? Snake oil. Yeah, well, yeah. I feel like that's more like uh, the traveling medicine show era. <laughs> True. 
So then there were rooms that had a private toilet. They didn't have like a tub, shower, any of that well, stuff. I mean, if electricity had, had just been installed, I'm sure indoor plumbing was like a new fad too. Like, <laughs> sure I feel like indoor plumbing is older than electricity. Much, much older. <laughs> yeah. So those rooms that had a private toilet were $2 per night. A toilet was worth one extra dollar? All that square footage just for one toilet? Oh, oh, oh. And then rooms that had their own private bathroom with a, a tub, $2.50 per night. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't pay more than 50 cents for a tub. <laughs> you I mean, know. That's my price point. I mean, that's my price point at that point, you know? You're also one of the cheaper people I've ever met in my uh, life. Cheapest? Well, I don't know. Your dad. <laughs> I was going to say, you've met my father. <laughs> yeah, your dad's pretty damn cheap. <laughs> one thing they didn't count on is people did not want to wait to use a shared bathroom. So most of the patrons were opting for the more expensive rooms. And then it had an unbalanced demand. And then, you know, those rooms filled up and they're like, well, this is what we got. And people were not happy because they didn't want to have to share the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. Nobody would. Yeah, I wouldn't. Heck, sometimes I'm skeeved out by using the bathroom in a hotel room just because like you think like I know they're disinfected and I know like they go through there with lots of chemicals right, and stuff like, like that but hundreds of it might as well be a public restroom like hundreds of people have used that bathroom yeah yeah the hotel was already built it was already over budget so they just didn't fix it within the first year of opening news stories already started spinning. A man named John Cronur was arrested after stealing a diamond hairpin from the Roslyn Hotel, then fleed from police from the Hayward Hotel, and then they caught him at the Cecil Hotel. Was that his shtick as a, as a thief? Just like his calling card was he just went to hotels to get away from cops? Like that's a poor plan. I'm the hotel escapist. <laughs> We'd be like, all right, so it, like, you're sick as you just hide in hotels from the cops after you steal a hairpin? A diamond hairpin. A diamond hairpin. Did he twirl a mustache the whole time? There was an even more salacious story in the late 20s when George Ford, an opium and morphine dealer and a long-term resident of the Cecil Hotel, was arrested at the nearby Astor Hotel with over $10,000 worth of drugs in his possession. That's about $174,000 worth of drugs these days. I love the idea of this guy's just walking around with a portable opium den. Pretty much. He was not arrested at the Cecil Hotel, but he lived at the Cecil Hotel. So one of the earliest losses of life at the Cecil was H.W. Simmons, who passed of natural causes. He had heart disease and ultimately his heart gave out on October 6th, 1926. No foul play, but this is just kind of the first in a line of many. So then Percy Orman Cook, in 1927, he had separated from his wife and son. He had tried multiple times to reconcile, and it just was not going well. So on January 23rd, he left a note addressed to the press where he said he spent $40,000 over the past six months in an attempt to buy happiness. And in his suicide note, he ended with, money cannot buy happiness. I have tried it and I find it cannot be done. I have lost my wife, my son, and my home, and I am doing the only thing left for me to do. And he then took his life in his hotel room. On April 17th, 
1929, Mrs. Dorothy Robertson collapsed near the main stairway in the lobby from an apparent barbiturate overdose. However, she survived the suicide attempt. She had been wandering around the hotel for a few days and people found out she was grieving over the sudden death of her husband. She was only, I believe, 30 something years old, so they weren't older. After she collapsed, she was rushed to the hospital, received medical attention, but after she was released, she ended up taking her own life anyway. She said that she could not live with the thought of being without him. So the next death happened November 17th of 1931, when W.K. Norton ingested a combination of opium and veronal poison. There was no sound of foul play or robbery, but there was no suicide note. They ruled it a suicide due to lack of evidence. However, the coroner could not de determine if he was a habitual user who overdosed, if he was suicidal, or if he was forced to take the poison. And you will start noticing in quite a few of these, no suicide note, which is also what kind of stirs up some of the rumors, mm. the gossip. On September 7th of 1932, a 25-year-old man named Benjamin Dodich was found in a blood-spattered room with a gunshot to the head. I had seen in some stories they compared it to the likes of some of the scenes from the show Dexter. Damn. Yes. Again, no suicide note, no signs of theft, struggle, or disturbance. Police canvassed the guests in the rooms on that floor, the immediately above and the immediately below, and no one heard a gunshot which is interesting because the hotel does not have thick walls. Hmm. So it was the type of thing that you could hear people talking and no one heard a gunshot. Hmm. Yeah, so again, it's an oddity, but based on the injury, the evidence, it was declared a suicide. In July of 1934, Sergeant Lewis S. Borden visited the hotel. He was a proud military man. He had spent his whole life being very healthy, very active, very strong. And he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He went as long as he could and he slowly started to wither away. It wore on him. When he came to the hotel, he left several farewell notes on a bedside table and then took a straight razor to his own throat. One of the sad things, Mama? Uh, it makes it sadder. There was a woman, Mrs. Edna Hassener. They had been together. They split. She moved on with her life and he left everything he had to her, but no one could find her because she shut him out of, of her life. And in the note, he said she was the sole beneficiary of the little that I leave. I thought that was really sad. Yeah. The story of 25-year-old Ms. Grace Magro is a sadly uncertain one. On March 15th, 1937, her body plunged nine stories from a window of the hotel. She fell onto power lines, which broke her fall slightly. Emergency workers found a weak pulse and heard her wheezing softly. She was tangled in these lines and poles mm. and everything. So they worked very quickly to remove her, but she died in the hospital not long after. It was never determined if she jumped or had been pushed. However, her companion, M.W. Madison, was sleeping in the room at the time of the occurrence 
which was corroborated by the hotel manager. This sounds a little suspicious to me. Hmm. He was sleeping and the hotel manager corroborated it? Maybe the Cecil has like, uh, we'll tell you good night over, you know how like so they, they have a wake up call, maybe they have a good night call. And you're just like, yeah, I called him, called him good night, tucked him in. And that's the service they have. <laughs> but maybe he woke up, pushed her out the window and went back to bed. I don't know. I mean, it's possible. This is when rumors started just kind of swirling around and people said that she was pushed by a restless spirit. The abundance of death was making the employees of the hotel very uneasy. Many quit. So when you find a body out. a week, it's kind of a, yeah, that's, that's, that's a rough, that's a rough day of work. Talk began to spread. People started wigging out. People started saying the place was cursed, the place is haunted. And it just continues from there. On January 2nd of 1938, a 35-year-old Marine fireman named Roy Thompson checked into the Cecil Hotel in his attempts to find a better life for him and his wife, Mary. One week later, he received the news that his wife had tragically died in a swimming accident. He blamed himself because he was not there. And the next day, filled with grief and guilt, he climbed to the roof and leapt to his death. His body was found on the skylight of a neighboring building. Wow. How, how tall is this building again? It's 700 rooms. I think it's 14 stories. All right, yeah. yes. They inspected his room and they found it, they considered it odd. It wasn't suspicious. It didn't, there wasn't foul play. It wasn't ransacked. It was the complete opposite. Everything was clean. Everything was neat and tidy. His clothes were hanging perfect in the closet. His shoes were tucked in nicely. There was no suicide note, no drugs, no alcohol. And this is when the rumors of ghosts really gained traction. People said that he was pushed off the roof by a ghost. Others said that the wind caught him and he just flew off the roof. I mean, I, I don't know how windy does it get on top of 14 story buildings? How close to it? I don't know. I, I don't know, but rumors just continued to grow, gain traction. In 1938, the effects of the Great Depression finally kind of cascaded to the area around the hotel. So the Great Depression started much earlier, but the hotel was kind of scripting and scraping along. The area around it was no longer opulent. The theaters had closed, the restaurants had closed, the shops had closed, and the homeless were building shelters and camps and crime began to rise. The hotel lowered its rates and the guests were no longer the, the wealthy, the, the high-end businessmen. It was whoever they could get in the door. So the deaths continue. U.S. Navy radio man's second class, Erwin Neblett, was a sailor on the USS Wright. He had always dreamed of being in the Navy, and he very, very foolishly entered a relationship with a naval officer's daughter, which went sideways when she claimed that he hit her. He maintained he never laid a finger on her, but the accusation and subsequent rumor mill led the Navy to force him to leave his dream career. On May 28, 1939, he was found unresponsive after ingesting strychnine poison. What year was this again? He said 1939. 39. Yeah, okay, so strychnine would have been all the rage. I, I 
I've read a bunch of murder mysteries from that time period. They all involve strychnine. From what I read, I didn't put all the details in here because it was it grossed me out, but it he did not have a pleasant death. Well, no, I can't imagine, like, he probably thought, like, I'll die through a, a poisoning, which can't be bad. Most people don't realize when you get poisoned, like, it's awful. He was covered in his own mess. Yeah, yeah, no, that, yeah. you're, you're, yeah. yeah. When you're poisoned, your body tries to get rid of everything. the poison. Yeah. So it tries to get rid of everything. Yeah, so he was found in the bathroom near the toilet and rigor mortis had already set in, which indicated that he had been dead at least four hours, but not quite 36 to 40. They thought, they estimated it was four to 12 hours, just because of like when he had last been seen, when they had last heard movement in the room. But that is the rigor is, it sets in within four hours, builds up to 12, stays and then the body becomes flexible again 36 to 40 hours post-mortem but yes that was basically the maid came into the room and the first thing that hit her was the smell and that's when she found the body and subsequently quit uh, yeah you know i don't care what the pension plan is again i'm, I'm finding the body i'm out same oh yeah same so on january 10th of 1940 Ms. Dorothy Skyger, a 45-year-old teacher, checked into the hotel under the name of Evelyn Brin. Now, I did a Google search, and it appears that was a popular actress at the time as well. After taking poison, she was found unresponsive and rushed to the local hospital. The papers listed her as near death, but she passed away a few days later. This one, it kind of threw me off because I could find very, very little on this one. There was a single newspaper clipping that I could find where it just said she wrote relatives at Riverside of her intention to end her life. She died at General Hospital of Poison. She had registered under Evelyn Brent, where police found her and sent her to the hospital. Illness was ascribed as her reason. Illness? Apparently, she had some sort of sickness that she felt she could no longer live with. But all of the other victims, I've been able to find something. And with her, I found very, very little, which is, it's very sad to me. Yeah. In September of 1944, and I will preface that this is horrible, and I will leave a warning that this may be extremely sensitive for some people, so you might want to skip ahead if you are unsure. In September of 1944, 19-year-old Dorothy Jean Purcell and her 38-year-old boyfriend, Ben Levine, checked into the hotel. She was unaware that she was pregnant. And that night, while her boyfriend slept, she gave birth in the bathroom of the hotel, and they had a room using the shared bathroom. She said that the baby was stillborn, so she just threw it out the window because she didn't want to disturb her sleeping boyfriend. She was probably in a panic, didn't know what to do. Yeah. Well, the autopsy showed that the baby had air in its lungs, which means it was not stillborn. She was later convicted guilty by reason of insanity. That one still, I... That's just messed up. In January of 1947, multiple witnesses saw Elizabeth Short in the hotel bar of the Cecil Hotel. This would be the last time she was seen in public 
before her gruesome murder, which became the unsolved Black Dahlia case. I don't know if you know about Black Dahlia. Uh, I listened to the prog metal band Black Dahlia Murder. (laughs) They have a song about Castlevania. Okay. Not the same thing. Just as brutal, though. Well, we did talk about her in a previous episode about the Cleveland Torso Murderer, but she was an aspiring actress. She was found in two pieces. She was severed at the waist and separated, and she was given a Glasgow smile. Many, many people, including the investigator at the time, believe it was George Hodel that killed her but they were never able to prove it in a court of law. One of the interesting facts from that episode is that his son ended up being an LA homicide detective. And after his father's passing, he dug into the case and he's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure my dad did it. Obviously they don't know where she was killed. It was not the Cecil because she was drained of all of her blood. So they would have found that somewhere. Somebody would have noticed that in a hotel pretty quick. Yeah, but she was last seen at the Cecil. On November 1st of 1947, 35-year-old Robert Smith leapt from the seventh floor of the hotel. One source stated that the reason was that he was gay. And in the 1940s, it was very much not accepted. He struggled and finally it became too much. Again, there was no foul play and no suicide note. From 1947 to 1954, the death stopped. Sweet. Yeah, there were no major incidents reported. However, everything around the hotel just completely degraded in quality. This is the area that is known as Skid Row, which even today is such a huge homeless area. And it had completely, like it started out as a small area and now completely encompassed the entire area of the hotel. Instead of the celebrities and wealthy businessmen, it now catered to transients, drug dealers, and criminals. And the kind of people you want staying at your, your hotel. Oh yeah, oh yeah. On October 17th of 1954, a woman checked in under the name Margaret Brown, and she spent a few nights in the hotel. She talked to employees. They said she was a very pleasant woman. She was very friendly and open but she was grieving her husband who had recently passed away. On October 22nd, the 55-year-old leapt from a seventh floor window and landed on top of the hotel marquee. She was later identified as Helen Gurney and a huge crowd formed because they needed to have the fire department and police come because of where she had landed. Right, they couldn't get there. Yeah. One of the articles as well that I had found was one of the witnesses that had watched it happening was standing on the sidewalk and started tearing up a Bible because of what he had witnessed. And then shortly afterward, police were called to the lobby of the Philharmonic Auditorium nearby because a man was hysterical in the lobby and they later said that he came out and said that it was because he witnessed her death and he was taken to his name was Melvin Hinckley and he was 28 years old he was taken to the hospital for observation and shock Mm. so on February 11th of 1962 Julia Francis Moore jumped from her eighth floor room and landed on 
the second floor roof in the light well of the building. So that's like the area around it that shoots the lights up the side of the building ah. so that you can see it yeah, from a okay. distance. In her room, they found identification, but no suicide note. She only had 59 cents of cash in her possession, but inside her purse was a bank book showing that she had almost $1,800, which nowadays is $17,690. Small amount. She had money in the bank, but it was in Springfield, Illinois. But she had come to LA from St. Louis. That's strange. Yeah, so they they tried to find her family, and I had seen there was a newspaper article in the St. Louis newspaper looking for anybody that knew her, and I don't believe they ever found her family. It's crazy to be like, hey, all this money. Nobody's claiming it. I could take, I, I could use an extra 17 grand. I'll take it right now, even, even at today's prices. <laughs> so on October 12th of 1962, Pauline Otten and her strange husband Dewey had an argument in her ninth floor room. After writing a suicide note, she leapt from the window and committed suicide. The event was even more tragic. And this is actually interesting because surprisingly, with all of these people who have jumped from that building, this is the only time it has happened, but she landed on a pedestrian. I heard about this. And she sadly killed 65-year-old transient George Giannini. Initially, the theories were that the two committed suicide together, but they found that George had his hands in his pockets and his shoes were still on his feet. If he had jumped off the building, yeah, your shoes fly off. Your hand. shoes fly off and you would not keep your hands in your pockets. So the police determined that he could not have jumped. So unfortunately, she inadvertently performed a murder-suicide. On June 4th of 1964, now this is the first major murder. 65-year-old Pigeon Goldie Osgood was found in her room. She was known as Pigeon Goldie for feeding the pigeons in the park. She absolutely loved birds. She also was a huge LA Dodgers fan. So she always wore her LA Dodgers baseball cap and she would take her bag of bird feed and she would go feed the birds. She was a retired telephone operator and she was living temporarily at the Cecil Hotel. She was raped, stabbed, beaten, and then choked to death with a hand towel, and the room was completely ransacked. Police spotted 29-year-old Jacques Ellinger in the park with blood on his clothing, and they thought maybe he was involved. They arrested him, they questioned him, and he was released because it was proven that he was not involved in her death, and unfortunately the case is still unsolved. I feel like murder back then was just like super easy to get away with. Unless somebody saw you like leaving the area. It's not like they had DNA at this point. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Although I do think it's interesting how many cases now because they do save the evidence. Yeah, like how many old cold cases are getting turned over thanks to DNA evidence. Yeah, yeah, well, we covered one from Lancaster, Lindy Sue Beekler. It was the oldest cold case in Lancaster. And after 46 years, they got the guy. Mm. Um, there was another one, Christy Mirak, that I would like to look into and potentially cover. That was, again, in the Lancaster County area. 
and again, solve the DNA. It was not as old as Lindy's case, but they are now using it. And one of the things that they're doing is genetic genealogy where they use these sites like Ancestry.com and 23andMe. And because all of that DNA is given willingly and you sign a waiver that says, yeah, it's okay, they can test against it. Mm. And they can actually find through genealogy, find, okay, so you have these different alleles in common, these different chromosomes and all mm. that stuff. So they can match people through family ties and find people. I think I find that fascinating. It's crazy. On December 16th of 1975, a young woman checked into the hotel under the name Allison Lowell. She was approximated to be in her early 20s, but they never discovered her true identity or where she came from. She stayed third on the third floor, but for some reason climbed up to the 12th and then jumped. They, they never figured out who she was? They never figured out who she was. They did put articles out there. And again, it was the 70s. So they put it in the newspaper of, does anybody know who she was? And they never found out. In the 1980s, Los Angeles was terrorized by Richard Ramirez. And he was known as the Night Stalker. You yeah, and I- Yes, yes, we watched, we watched that thing on him. It's called a documentary. <laughs> that thing on Netflix where they talk about stuff. I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> no, I remember the, yeah, we watched, I can't remember if we watched only one or two. So we watched The Night Stalker and we also watched the one about the Cecil Hotel. Yes, yes, what's her yeah. name? Elisa Lamb, which yes. we will get to. During his brutal rampage, so he was the Night Stalker because he would kill people at night. He killed at least 38 people that they have proven, probably more. And during his famous spree, when he was in the Los Angeles area, he stayed at the Cecil Hotel. There were witnesses who actually saw him in an alley outside of the building, stripping off his bloody clothing, throwing it in a dumpster, and then going up to his room in just his bloody underwear. Not, not suspicious at all. And I feel like, isn't that when you would call the cops? It's LA. Yeah, I mean, there might've been a payload. 80s LA. Cops were not rolling into Skid Row for, for very much. <laughs> this is true. This is true. So he was arrested on August 20th of 1985 and convicted of 13 of the murders. He was sentenced to the death penalty, but died of cancer in 2013 before he could be executed. One of my favorite facts is he had some sort of weird blood cancer. And at the end, he was the color of a yellow highlighter because he was so jaundiced. I feel if you're going to murder people like that, you kind of deserve um, being a yellow highlighter for a while. So then in 1991, did you know that Ramirez was not the only serial killer that stayed at the Cecil Hotel? Well, I mean, the, if only one stayed there, that I mean, that's that's like a neat thing to put on like a travel form. But like, it's not, you're not going to be known for anything with only one serial killer. <laughs> Especially like this is the eighties, like the golden age of serial killers are, are we're in full swing. Well, no, this is nineteen ninety one now. Oh, 91. 91. 91. My 91. So yeah, okay. So at this point, I, I, I would have said if the Cecil hadn't made it as a serial killer hotel, they weren't coming. They should just hang it up. So Austrian Jack Unterweger stayed at the That's Cecil. That's the most Austrian name I've ever heard in my life. You could have just said his name and already I'm picturing this like eight 
foot carved out of like marble guy just like <laughs> he's, he's he's for some reason like automatically in my in my brain he's just always doing a biathlon like he's always <laughs> just skiing with a rifle on his back like, all the time so initially he was convicted of a single murder in 1974 while in prison he wrote extensively and actually got his work into the public light and he was able to convince the Austrian literary elite that he was rehabilitated. And they read his writing and they're like, there's no way he could be a danger to society. They lobbied for him to get released from jail. And he was paroled in 1990. So he was convicted of a murder. And because he was such a smooth talker and such a good writer, he got released. He started teaching. He became a journalist. He also killed women in Czechoslovakia, Austria, Germany, and America. He developed a rapport with the police because he would do interviews of them. He would ride along like he would be in the cop car as a civilian, chatting with the cops, making buddies, all that stuff. Meanwhile, he was the one killing the sex workers. He murdered three uh, American sex workers before being caught. Possibly more, but they could only prove three. And then he was returned and tried in Austria. He committed suicide in prison before he could be convicted of the other nine known murders. Wow. So he killed at least 12. On September 1st of 1992, a man's body was found in the alley behind the hotel. It was determined that he was approximately between 20 and 30 years of age, and he either jumped, fell, or was pushed from the roof. But they were never able to identify him, and they were never able to solve the case. So this is another one that is still open and unsolved. This is like mid-90s? 92. Okay, 92. Still. February of 2013 may be the most famous loss of life at Sizzle. A Canadian student, Elisa Lam, wanted to travel and see the world. She came to Los Angeles and she stayed at the Cecil Hotel. She went missing for two weeks. Two weeks later, maintenance was dealing with multiple, multiple complaints about the water. It was murky, it tasted funny, everyone was complaining. So the maintenance man went up, opened up the, the big tank on the roof, and found her body. She had drowned and the case hit the media. Yeah, I remember this. This, uh, like I was online a lot back then. Yeah. Um, they released the video. Yeah, she was found in her underwear. So people were thinking foul play. You know, she was murdered, possibly raped, anything like that. And then they had this video of her in the elevator acting very strangely it's a weird if you watch it she's like i remember watching it for the back then and i was like what is going on with this poor woman the police hit dead ends and they actually released that video to the internet and they're like can anybody help does anybody know anything are there any ideas and that was a poor choice on their part <laughs> well people they were enhancing it they were getting audio and you know details of the video and trying to find out what could have possibly happened i, I don't think the cops of that era quite understood what the internet could do it just makes me think of hackers right <laughs> 
hackers of the world unite. If you, if you can get the internet involved, yeah, it's going to get crazy. They found out through the investigation and everything that she was, in fact, bipolar. She had a severe bipolar disorder and she was off of her meds. And they actually ended up classifying it as a suicide during a severe bipolar episode. But not everybody agrees with this determination. There are web sleuths around the world who still believe that it was either murder or a supernatural event due to her behavior in the elevator. It looks as though she is hiding from someone. She is talking to someone. Yeah, I remember like watching the video thinking like this. She's definitely hiding from somebody. Like it, because if you watch the video, it clearly seems like she's like she's tucking her head in and out of the the elevator door and she keeps like it's very strange it's very strange it is very strange and again it the case is closed it has been deemed a suicide but people don't believe her and if you go on the supernatural front people have really run far with it i can only imagine the last reported incident was june 13th of 2015 when an unidentified 28 year old male was found outside the hotel it is suspected he fell or jumped, still unidentified, case is still open. This was in 2015? Yes. Because it is spooky month, it is October, due to the long string of murders, suicides, accidental deaths, attempted deaths, many believe that the Cecil is a hotbed for paranormal activity. Some people believe that the ghosts of the hotel are simply those who lost or took their lives there. Others believe that it draws supernatural beings to it. They say there is a poltergeist in the hotel, which led me to actually look up the definition of the word. I was always under the assumption that a poltergeist is a group of spirits, probably because I've seen the movie yep. and Supernatural too many times. But Webster's Dictionary says that it is a single mischievous ghost responsible for unexplained noises. It comes from the German words poltern, meaning to knock, and geist, meaning spirit. So a poltergeist is literally a knocking spirit. There are rumors and gossip that Ramirez, who is known for his satanic obsession, he carved the pentagram in his hands. He was always praising Satan in the trial, etc. They said he performed dark rituals on the roof, which could have caused a demonic infestation on the building. There is a show, I believe it is on Discovery, called Ghost Adventures. And Zach Baggins and his team investigated the hotel. The hotel actually, so this is the only time they have allowed a supernatural show or paranormal show to come and do an investigation at the hotel. They shut it down to the public for one night. Wow. And, you know, they were given free reign. There were multiple instances. They caught a shadowy figure on film. They had unexplained scratches on their skin. And he was in Jack Winterfager's room and the faucet turned itself on. That's crazy. There are other common observations by many people of screaming, odd smells, unsettling feelings, cold spots. It could be anything from psychosomatic to actual issues. Now, one thing to remember, it is in a very bad part of the city, so screaming could just be screaming. screaming. Yeah. And another thing that is very interesting is that a lot of incidents over the years occurred on or from the seventh floor of the building. So 
There are a lot of people who are very uneasy and avoid that floor because they are creeped out by it. And then another interesting tidbit is that the colorful history of the hotel actually inspired an entire season of American Horror Story. Huh. So American Horror Story Hotel is not a recreation of what happened at the Cecil, it's just the inspiration. In 2013, the hotel was rebranded as Stay on Main. I learned this because when we looked at, when we watched the, the documentary on the Cecil, I immediately looked up to see what rates were because <laughs> I was like, we should stay there. No, we um, should not. And I couldn't find the Cecil, but I, I would find listings for, for this hotel. So Stay on Main is actually the branding that Elisa Lam logged in, right. or not logged in, stayed as. And it was an attempt to change the image. They redecorated, they tried to make it trendy and young and hip, but very unsuccessfully. Well, you're still in the middle of Skid Row. Location, location, location. In August of this year, the local government has approved a plan to repurpose the building as permanent housing for the homeless community. Okay. It is going to no longer be a hotel. They are working through the plans and the technical. It's probably going to take quite some time, but they are trying to deal with the homeless problem in LA. So in conclusion, is the Cecil Hotel haunted? Is it cursed? We'll probably never know, but we do know for certain that it has been steeped in death, crime and intrigue from the day it was built. And that is the story of the Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles, California. Which is why we got we got to stay there. Got to have no. have one of our anniversary. That'll be our what's what's the silver anniversary? What's, uh, what's I'm that? not telling you because I'm not staying in that hotel. No, I'll just uh, spring it on you, surprise it on you. I am never going to LA with you. <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you for doing this. I do hope that Kraken feels better. Same. I feel like he's more entertaining than I am, probably. I thought you were going to say more entertaining than me, and I was like, thanks. Thanks. He probably is, though. <laughs> <laughs> but that is going to be it for tonight. As always, make sure to check out our website for all of the show notes, sources, and more information at thesquonkandthehag.com. And we would also love and appreciate your support by either leaving a review on iTunes or through small monthly donations using the viewer support link in the description. And if you don't subscribe, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast network to get notified of new episodes every Thursday. All right, Krakow, you ready? Okay, bye.